Late last year, a pastor, because of an extramarital affair. Unfortunately, these types of things uh, happen all the time. Uh, but this, this one made national news. And partly this was because it was a very high-profile individual in a very popular church. So, you know, a lot of fodder for newspapers. Um, but I think there was, there's another reason, and that is because uh, this particular situation highlighted one of the great ironies of mainstream American Christianity. An irony that a journalist named Caitlin Beatty memorably titled, The Hot Pastor Problem. (laughs) What does she mean? Well, the four Gospels tell us nothing about what Jesus looked like. And the only clue that we have in the Bible is a a passing reference in a prophecy from the Old Testament that says Jesus would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In light of that, in light of the fact that we have a very average-looking Savior, it's striking that one of the most successful church growth strategies is to platform male leaders who are anything but. This is from Beatty. With skinny jeans, tattoos, and tight abs, the hot pastor is commissioned to bring souls to Jesus by mimicking the temptations of social media thirst traps. But if you embody that culture, you risk becoming it. Hotness is as hotness does. Now, some of you are thinking, I know churches like that, and that's why I'm here. Nick, how do I break this to you? You're not hot. You're wearing a dress. First, how dare you? Second, uh, that's true. But that is not uh, to say that Church of the Cross could not fall into that same temptation, the hot pastor trap. Because at core, it's not about how good looking the person is that's talking. It's about desire, the dynamic of desire, and pursuing success by having leaders who are very desirable. And maybe, it again, it's because of chiseled jawlines and deep v-necks. But it could just as easily be because of, you know, nuanced, culturally sensitive homilies or, or something else entirely. It's at core about desire and the danger of wanting and nurturing the sensation of being desired. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that is because uh, I think that Jesus experiences something similar in our gospel text. And I'm going to pick up the story where Miss Sarah left off. Jesus is in the home of Peter and Andrew, some of his first followers. And if you notice when I read it, it, uh, Mark says that when the sun went down, something changed. Why does that matter? Because this was... Capernaum, first century Israel, everyone was Jewish, and they honored the laws of the Sabbath. But when the sun went down, people could now freely move about the town. And what happened almost immediately? A tsunami of pain and desperation crested and crashed on the front door of Peter's house. Mark tells us that the whole town gathered outside, and the floodgates of Jesus' mercy and compassion and power were opened wide. He cured their sick bodies. He brought relief to their tormented spirits. Now, first detail in the story I really want you to notice 
is the fact that Jesus did not let the demons speak. He commands them to be silent. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, on one level, this is purely tactical. This is crowd control. The demons knew Jesus's identity. They knew who he really was. And Jesus did not want word getting out that the Son of God had come to visit planet Earth. Why? Well, just think of the crowds, right? I mean, we're kind of experiencing a measure of this right now. Vaccine appointments open up at CVS and no one goes to work. Similar idea. Jesus is trying to control the crowds. But I think there's something deeper going on than purely tactics. Because if you read the Gospel of Mark, there is this theme of Jesus intentionally trying to obscure his identity, of Jesus operating in in hiddenness or secrecy. He commands demons to be silent a few more times. He withdraws from crowds a few more times. There's like five times where Jesus will heal someone miraculously. They have leprosy or unable to walk or talk. But Jesus will tell them, don't tell anyone that I did this for you. I think the most bizarre element in this feature of the story is that Jesus will very intentionally make confusing public statements. You know, Jesus was not a good teacher. He was an intentionally bad teacher. He would say things that no one knew how to make sense of. And then in private, to a select group of people, Jesus would explain the meaning of his parables. It's as if Jesus wanted to stay hidden. He wanted to work in obscurity. He did not want massive crowds of people around him all the time. Why? Why was Jesus so ambivalent about his own popularity and seemed to work at cross purposes with his mission by limiting access to himself? Well, second detail I want you to notice in our gospel text is that it says in the Bible that Jesus went to a solitary place to pray. Now, again, he's in the region of Capernaum, and Capernaum is kind of like Mueller in Austin. (laughs) It's a very developed area that's a bustling, prosperous uh, collection of all these little villages and towns. So there are spaces to be alone, you know, it's like green space, but it's a very developed region. And that's why our Bible translators use the phrase solitary place. But the actual word, it's just one word in the Greek, and it's the same word for wilderness or desert or desolate place. Now, that doesn't make any geographic sense. There was no wilderness in Capernaum, just like there's no wilderness in Mueller. So the translators don't use that term. But I think that Mark uses the term wilderness for a very specific reason. And here's why. Because the wilderness is where Jesus was when he encountered his great temptation when he first began his ministry. A lot of you know that story. Satan comes to Jesus and He does a few things, but one of the things he does is says, here are the keys to the kingdoms of the earth. I will make you an object of universal desire. I will make you a king. And Jesus knew that though he would be a king, he first had to be abandoned, that he would take the throne, but first he had to sit on the cross, that he would be rejected by his closest friends and the crowds that were now straining to have access to him. I don't know this, but I think it's reasonable to suspect that Jesus felt the pull of the crowds. He felt the pull of being an object of desire. It says, uh, you know, this story in Mark is also told in Luke, and when the Gospel of Luke, and when Luke tells the story, he adds a detail that we don't have. It says that when the people found Jesus, when he was in that solitary place, they said, 
do not leave us. They tried intently to keep him from leaving them. And just put yourself in their shoes, right? Here is a walking ER. Here is someone who's able to solve your economic, your social, your psychological, your physical problems instantaneously. It's incredible. There's no, never been anyone like that. And so the people say, understandably, don't leave us. We want you. You are a hot pastor. They did not say that. But just the idea that this, this desire. And it says that Jesus pulled away. He prayed. And in his prayer, he wasn't just praying because he was tired and burned out. He was praying because he was being tempted. And he needed strength from God to stay true to his vocation. Jesus had no problem solving or meeting people's tangible needs. I don't want to give the impression that he was denying people for the sake of denying people. But Jesus knew that he was not just a miracle worker. And he knew that part of his mission was not just to do miracles, but in some ways to channel God's power in hiddenness. He knew that he could draw massive crowds by instantaneously and irrefutably raising people from the dead or healing people's sick bodies. But he knew that the kind of loyalty and allegiance and depth of commitment that God is after does not necessarily come about by signs and wonders. That sometimes we have to know how to walk with Jesus when God seems far away, when the miracles don't happen, when the prayers seem unanswered. That is when you really go from being a fan to a follower. And that is when your faith really starts to make a difference. Look, we all have times, or we have all had times in our life when things just click. We're successful. We're punctual. We complete our tasks. We set goals and we meet those goals. Maybe we get promoted at work or we achieve something we've been wanting to do for a long time. That is wonderful. There's nothing better than when the gap between expectation and outcome is thrillingly small. We, I love those times. But that, of course, is not all the time. You know, uh, second vaccine joke. Following Jesus does not produce immunity from life's inevitable downturns. It just flatly doesn't. And I would argue that following Jesus can actually make some of those hard times even more complicated because we start asking all these questions about God and God's love and God's protection. Like, God, what happened to your promise of faithfulness here in this situation? How do I reconcile the pain of, of, of lived experience with the wonderful promises in the Bible about your love and care for me. You know, I wasn't supposed to be able to dash my foot against the stone, but I broke my leg. How do, what do I think about that? It's a real problem. And as a matter of fact, I think that is the problem addressed in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 40. So I'm going to turn there as we close. I'm not that close to being done, morning, but I'm going to make a move. Um, Isaiah addresses the people of God when they are far from home. This prophecy is addressed to a situation that occurred six centuries before Jesus. And the people of God who are native to Israel have been exiled in Babylon, a foreign land. They are, they are run down. They are weary. 
They have been crushed. It says in Psalm 137, they're too tired to even sing the praises of God in that foreign land. And there's this tension in this passage, which is this. There are circumstances that are impossible to deny. Their afflictions were not psychosomatic, right? It was very real. They were in a different country, and God had seemingly abandoned them. They give voice to that exact feeling in the text. They say, our cause has been disregarded by God. Our way is hidden from the Lord. Circumstances impossible to deny. On the other hand, Isaiah's response, he gives them truth that would have felt impossible to believe. He says, yeah, you're right. Things are hard. And your circumstances do not speak of a God who is intimately involved in your life, caring for you every step of the way. But those feelings do not deny the reality that God stands alone. Isaiah actually, he kind of makes two moves. The first thing he does is he talks about God's unrivaled power and sovereignty. He says God can bring the princes of the world to nothing. These Babylonian rulers are a piece of cake. He says God can number all the stars in the sky. Look around and see the grandeur of nature. That is the handiwork of your God, Israel. He has power to save you. That's the first thing he does. And then he makes this promise, this very famous promise. He assures them of an energy and a vibrancy that is the direct result of God being their God. You all know the verse. He says, you will, you will mount up on wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weary. You will not walk and not faint. It's an assurance of energy and enthusiasm of vibrancy because that day that hard day is going to end Isaiah says God is going to lead you home and when you have the opportunity to go home you will run and not grow weary you will walk and not faint I actually want to draw your attention to that that very famous promise you will soar on wings like eagles you know that's the stuff of motivational posters and refrigerator magnets but scholars of this of the Hebrew Bible point out that this promise is actually more grounded than you might think because what's on offer here is not refurbishment but rebirth it's not simply soaring but sprouting because what's what's happening in this promise I I kind of always took it as a young strong eagle jumping off a cliff and then soaring in the sky. But what's actually pictured is a weary, old, run-down eagle whose feathers are molting and then receiving new feathers in place of the old one. That is a promise I can relate to. When we hold our hearts and our spirits before God and we're weary and we're tired and it feels like we just can't keep going, the promise of the gospel is in that place. God does alchemy. <laughs> It's there that base metals are turned into gold. That is when we run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. So, you know, I want to just make Isaiah's move to you this morning and say, surely you know, surely you've heard. It's been told to you from the beginning. You've understood since the earth was founded. Life is complicated. And life can undoubtedly cast doubt on the promises of God. But you can believe anyway. It's, that is ultimately what I want to say. That through the truth of the word of God, 
and the reality of the Spirit of God, and I want to say something even more than that, Jesus Christ in our midst right now, Jesus who died for you, who rose again, who is coming again for you, I believe that Jesus is a real person who actually has the capacity to create in our hearts a capacity for faith, even when our circumstances are screaming God's promises are not real. That God's providence does not actually extend to you. That you're always going to be constrained and stuck in this difficult place. I believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say, that's stupid. Jesus is risen. He is alive. And he can create in his people a capacity to soar. So that is my word to you, malting eagles out there. Jesus will give you ring, wings. He will make you ready to run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. So let's stand. Let's lay hold of his promise and soar. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.